friends. How are we doing today? Are we hanging in there? Listen, I just want to say at the beginning, I know how heavy the conflict between Palestine and Israel, really between Hamas and the Israeli government have been. Um, I've gotten a lot of DMs from so many of you, several of which are in the Middle East. Some of you have friends in the Gaza Strip. Um, I talked to rabbis who are just devastated by the loss of life due to the surprise attack from Hamas. There's just nothing good to report in this situation. The death toll is only climbing. A lot of kids on both sides of that conflict are dying. And I will tell you, it's been in my head. I've dreamt about this the past two nights. Um, full transparency, yesterday at my desk, I came across a picture uh, of a parent with their child who is no longer on this earth. And I had to put my, my phone down. I just wept. I mean, tears hit my keyboard. I, I was just sobbing uncontrollably, uncontrollably um, at the loss of life. Children who did not deserve what happened to them. Israeli babies who didn't deserve what happened to them. Palestinian babies who did not deserve what happened to them. So this definitely is bigger than just me trying to give you content. I understand that. But I am trying to give you some sense of understanding to some of the ingredients that are going into this current situation that we're all watching from afar, feeling really helpless that we can't do anything to stop it. So that being said, on this part two, I brought on Dan Hummel. He is a leading voice, at least in the academic worlds, that he is around on the history and the understanding of Christian Zionism. What does that mean? What are some of the background pieces that have given us what we have seen in our evangelical consciousness, right? Uh, recently, Greg Locke came out and said some pretty outlandish things uh, about, about how if you don't always stand with the nation of Israel, you're just asking for curses to be heaped upon you. Um, other more mainstream evangelical leaders have come out in full support of the Israeli government. Where does this come from? What is the backstory to this? Well, it's complicated. And Dan is here to kind of give us the big picture overview of some of the threads that have gotten us to this point. And yes, it's tied to prophecy, it's tied to rapture theology, but it's also tied to American politics and to Western ways of being and to nationalism. So this is a very interesting conversation. Hopefully it brings and sheds more light uh, to give you some better tools to understand what's currently happening. And then after this episode is part three, which will be probably the most sensitive and raw conversation out of these three for sure. I will save the details until I release that episode, so hang tight. I also want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to part one. I've gotten a lot of great feedback that, that it's been very helpful for you, so thank you. Um, I have heard the feedback that some of the ad breaks were a little abrupt, so I actually give you a warning. I say in this episode, let's go to a break. That way you have a heads up that it's coming. That's a fair point. I really appreciate you being here, friends. I can only imagine how you're feeling. Um, we're navigating this together. We're holding space for each other. Um, I refuse to get into the dehumanization game. I refuse to start pretending that um, it's all or nothing with whatever side you think need or, or is or isn't right or wrong. It is way more complicated than that, as hopefully part one has demonstrated. I think part two will only further demonstrate that. And then we'll get into part three. I should have that, that one out by hopefully Friday. So, hey, if you want to support the work that we're doing, we are a nonprofit organization. The reason I'm able to bring this content to you is because people have donated. That's the honest truth. And we do this all paywall free. There's no subscription model and there's nothing behind a paywall for you to get access to. Uh, we are a nonprofit, like I said, which means all donations are tax deductible. You can donate at the link below and everything goes right to TNE. And we are financially transparent in case you don't know that. You can go to our website right now and see our last quarter profit and loss statement. We are not trying to hide money. We're not trying to hide the funds. Everything that you donate to or everything that you donate goes right to the organization to make all of this work possible that allows me to do these three-part episodes on really short notice and to get the content out to you. So, all right, friends, um, without further ado, here's my interview with Dan. I'll talk to you all in a few days. All right, Dr. Dan Hummel, it's good to see you again. Um, I had you on the podcast recently, just a few months ago, talking about your book, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, and now I'm talking you, uh, to you today to 
help me and us understand the history of Christian Zionism. So it's good to be with you. Welcome. Good to be with you, Tim. Um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself briefly to the audience? Um, and then we're going to talk about a very uh, broad, complicated, like so much of this discussion so far has been in this three-part series, uh, history regarding Christian Zionism, where it comes from, and how it affects how we view what's happening right now between Palestine and Israel. Sure. So I'm coming to you from Madison, Wisconsin, and I um, I got my PhD in in history at UW Madison, particularly in American religious and diplomatic history, and I focused in on this issue of Christian Zionism, particularly telling a sort of political religious history of the movement of American largely evangelicals to organize to support the state of Israel over the last few generations. So that book came out in 2019. Um, it's called Covenant Brothers. Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli relations is with an academic press. So if you go onto Amazon, it's um, it's quite expensive. I think it's sixty dollars. So maybe that's not the purchase uh, that your your <laughs> listeners want to make today, but it's out there. Um, and then I've published a number of peer reviewed articles and in uh, all different types of outlets like um, the Washington Post and Christianity Today um, around uh, U.S.-Israeli relations and particularly the religious dimension and particularly Christian Zionist dimension to that relationship. Mm -hmm. So today I'm I'm a fellow. I'm a research fellow in the history department at UW, and my my day job is working at a Christian study center called upper house right on campus at UW-Madison. Wow. I know that you and I discussed before we started recording that we want to handle this conversation as ethically and humanely as possible. Obviously, we know that a lot of people are dying right now, um, whether they're um, in the Gaza Strip or they are uh, Israeli civilians, and there's been a lot of bloodshed and a lot of death, and that is tragic and terrible. And it's important for me, and I know for you as well, that we really talk about this issue honestly and openly and truthfully, but also doing our best not to paint, especially a minority group like Jewish people uh, in, in, in a light that, that, that can be seen as anti-Semitic or anything like that. So that is, of course, not the goal. Um, and today we're kind of talking about really more of like the evangelical Christian part of what maybe has kind of helped create um, the ingredients that have led to some of the tensions that we're seeing here today. My first question for you is how do we Think about and define the term Christian Zionism. Like, like let, let's unpack the terms first, and then we'll get into the history. Sure, and I appreciate your your qualifiers. Um, of course, almost any, almost uh, nothing in this conversation isn't without dispute by one side yeah. or the other. And I'll just be you know upfront. I come to this as a Christian, as someone who would, if I guess I'd respond to evangelical Christian even in in a lot of contexts. So I have my own understandings, and some of that gives me. Um, unique insight, or at least um, uh, um, proximity to some of the actors in this. But of course, that means I have my own blinders as well. And um, I have lived in Israel for extended periods of time, um, uh, particularly the, the city of Jerusalem. So I do have some firsthand experience, but I have nowhere near the lived experience of anyone who has to um, live day to day in, in this conflict. So um, with all those caveats, um, uh, I will say that the term Christian Zionism is an interesting one. I, I like to distinguish uh, two things. So Christian Zionism, if you think about it, it's an ism, right? So it's a set of ideas or beliefs. Um, and, and these tend to be around the belief that the Jewish people need a state of their own. And um, there are all types of Zionism, and uh, Christian Zionism is one brand of it, held by Christians who are using um, biblical, Christian biblical arguments to make the case for a Jewish state. And they're often combining those arguments with other um, uh, other arguments that may not be religious. They may be about geopolitics or mm -hmm. U.S. culture or something else. Um, or increasingly, Christian Zionism is global. So it might be uh, Nigerian Christians or South Korean Christians. Um, they can also be Christian Zionists as well. And and the, the uh, Christian Zionism has been a... Uh, a set of beliefs that have evolved over time, and there's many different versions of it, that go back at least to the Reformation. So we're talking at least 500 years worth of history. There's mm -hmm. also the Christian Zionist movement. So there's there's these ideas that are out there and they're sort of floating around and people are invoking them. Maybe theologians talk about them. But then there's the sort of uh, on the ground organizational work to actually 
leverage those ideas into action, into political influence, and actually to, to shape the diplomatic or on the ground reality uh, of Zion, of Christian Zionism. And so I call that the mm. Christian Zionist movement. And so there are a number of really prominent lobby groups and organizations that are way newer. I mean, m- most of them are uh, have been created in the last few decades that um, have, have played a, a big role in how many Americans have consumed their information about the Arab-Israeli conflict um, and how they've uh, thought about this uh, this issue in relation to politics, in relation to voting, in relation to sort of who they want to lend their support to. And so the Christian Zionist movement is something that's much more recent. It's, it's uh, the, the, what we talk about um, today uh, is something that's, that's only a few decades old, uh, but it's tapping into a Christian Zionist discourse or a Christian Zionist uh, set of beliefs that goes back uh, much, much further. I want to, I want to, obviously we, we only have about an hour and that's not enough time to get into 500 years of history. Um, I want to really try and trace the threads that lead up to how many of, of us, and I mean the audience and myself have understood, uh, the role of Israel in, in prophecy and in global affairs. And, um, you know, I was taught as a child that, that, that the nation state of Israel becoming recognized by the U.S. was a major fulfillment of prophecy, getting us closer to the end times. So I want to trace some of those threads. And I, I, I guess one of my first questions is I'm under the impression, and I always tell my guests, especially the experts, please correct me whenever I'm wrong, that that, that Christian um, Zionism, the idea of, hey, there's, a, there's some Christians here who think that it's important for Jewish people to have their own uh, state – almost precedes Jewish Zionism. Is that is, is that the case? And can you give us some of the context there? Yes, it does. Um, well, of course, there's always been a, a, um, a sub-tradition within Judaism, even before the modern Zionist movement, of Jews claiming that, that they they were they have a covenant with God that this land is part of that covenant, but in terms of a of, of an actual movement, yes, Christian Zionism is largely a 19th century uh, creation, but it it it's older than you know Theodore Herzl and and the modern political Zionism of the late 19th century. Some of the ideas go back to like I mentioned the Reformation and particularly Protestants reading the Bible for themselves in their vernacular languages, developing new interpretations that lead to all, all different types of interpretations and. And then movements that develop from those interpretations. And part of even that move to read the Bible in the vernacular acquainted some Protestants with the Hebrew language, with the Hebrew Bible in a new way that that had not been done before in the pre-Reformation era. And so it's hard often to disentangle, you might even say a type of philo-Semitism or a love of the Jewish people, or or at least a Christian understanding of the Jewish people. And that's always contentious because the way Christians talk about Judaism and Jews is often different than how Jews would talk about themselves. And that's a, that's a major point of tension. Um, but but those trends of, of, um, of sort of wanting to see uh, the Jewish people succeed and then actually believing in some type of theological way that there is a future for the Jewish people in their homeland, as they would call it, in the promised land, um, is something that goes back at least to the 19th century. And so we we know now that some of the um, th- people like Theodore Herzl, who's this founder of the modern Zionist movement, were actually inspired by and encouraged by uh, some Christian partners in, in Europe in particular, as he was developing his ideas. And that's in part, that's because in the sort of broader cultural era of the 19th century, nationalism was a big thing. Nationalism yeah. was happening all over the place. And so in some senses, Zionism wasn't that much different than other types of nationalism, except it had this distinctly biblical connection uh, because Israel is talked about so much in the Bible and, and because Christians make these connections to the modern people, uh, the modern Jewish people and and the Holy Land. Um, but, uh, but, but there's also um, a distinctly Christian contribution as well that we can get into about the particular theology that Christians are arguing means that there should be um, a Jewish state in, Pal- in Palestine at the time. I'm glad that you mentioned the nationalism piece because I didn't. I did not get to this part with Kevin, uh, my last guest, talking about the history of Israel and Palestine. Um, one of the things in the air, as I was reading and trying to, you know, crash course myself into what am I walking into here, was this reality that I wasn't aware of that that the idea of nationalism, as we understand it, was really being birthed mm-hmm. uh, in like that 19th, uh, early 20th century, um, you know, uh, mindset of of I believe you, you know uh, more Western European view 
you that then kind of got transferred over to the Ottoman Empire and this idea of, oh, yeah, as a nation, we're identified by these things, by this culture. And that kind of played a role into the idea, whether you're Jewish or a Christian, of, oh, well, Jewish people need to have their own nation state as 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 nationalism is kind of taking off. Is, is that kind of the, the story there? Yes, it is. And there's a there's a famous book from a few decades ago called Imagine Communities. It's by a ben, Benedict Anderson, a, a famous um, a scholar. And and you think of that, it's a very capturing term, imagine community. So every nation is this sort of imagined family or this imagined kinship network that deserves its own unique plot of land and then its own unique autonomy. And so this is an idea that comes you know in the wake of the expansion of European empire across the globe that's happening in the 19th century. And then people groups within those empires in particular. And, and you think about Central Europe, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's a ton of nationalism happening there too. And that's actually where Herzl is hanging out, is in the mm. is in that empire. Um, this is this is in the blood as, as people are responding to the expansion of empire. They're developing these imagined communities that are much smaller than the broad multi-ethnic empires that are controlling uh, Europe and, and much of the world. And the Ottoman Empire is another example of that. So within the Ottoman Empire, there's an Arab nationalist movement. Um, there's a Turkish nationalist movement. And you see the seeds of what we, we would consider now sort of the modern way of looking at a map where every ethnic group or every sort of imagined community has their own nation. Um, that, that's a 19th century development. And it's something that um, Jews were caught up in. They're caught up in a, in a unique way because of their history of being dispossessed for centuries and centuries and, right. and being spread across multiple empires and multiple um, continents even. So they have a unique history compared to some other peoples, but in, in many other ways, they're not that remarkable for having this uh, development in the 19th century. I just think I just think that's really a big bomb drop for a lot of us. The fact that nationalism, as we understand it, is a more recent construct. It's not this ancient idea. So when we read, folks, just a, a side caveat, me kind of uh, b- pulling out of the conversation for a minute. When we read about Jesus saying, "Disciple all the nations," he's not thinking about things in terms of how we think about it. Just keep that in mind. Um, but okay, one of my, my my first questions to launch us into this history is. What was the motivation for early Christian Zionists that made them say, whoa, we got to really leverage and push for uh, a nation where Jewish people have their own you know, land and territory? I'm under, again, under the impression, and if I'm wrong, please tell me, that for most Jewish people, when this was taking off, it was pretty unpopular and even rejected. Yet Christians, the ones that we're talking about, were, were very persistent in making this happen. What are the, the dynamics and the motivations at play? Yeah, it's really, it's really complicated because you have a lot lot of different reactions to yeah i'm maybe, so surprised yeah, it's complicated maybe i'll just not even say that anymore and it's just uh, the unspoken <laughs> assumption um because uh, you have a lot of jewish reactions to um to christians even making these types of arguments in the 19th century you have some that are quite enthusiastic someone like herzl who's quite enthusiastic but he's he's sort of the outlier at the beginning he's got a particular reading of the world and a particular very pessimistic view of jewish of the jewish future um in this nationalizing European context. It turns out he he was, you know, he had good good foresight on a lot of that. Um, right. Absolutely. Um, but there was another very strong move among the Jewish community, both in Europe and in the United States at the time, that the future of, of Jews was to be, um, was to blend in, was to actually become, you know, the most patriotic Americans or the most uh, strong supporters of the British Empire, and that would win over the broader non-Jewish population to see mm-hmm. Jews as part of that imagined community. Um, and so the the prospect of Zionism was not at all um, appealing to them because Zionism uh, pointed out the differences between Jews and others, and actually made um, you know it ma- made some uh, people suspicious of Jews because they had this other loyalty. There was this always this dual loyalty claim that that crops up, and as part of a longer sort of history of anti-Semitism. So, right, like conspiracy theories, it sounds like almost yeah, conspiracy like theories. Kind of idea. Or, or that, that's one version, and another is is just a basic questioning of. Um, you know, whose who's loyalty is higher? Is it is it your Jewish identity or is it your American citizenship or is mm. it your British citizenship? And this has been a canard that's come up um, over and over again to delegitimize arguments that Jews make, um, particularly in favor of of, um, of of saving Jews or supporting Jews in, in particular mm. situations. Um, so that being said, some of the arguments that Christians were making were also very Christian. And so they, they wouldn't 
really be appealing to Jews either. And I think you're right that we can't go too far in this conversation without talking about um, the end times and the role that Israel uh, plays in the end times. Now, when when um, Christians in this mode, and we'll, we'll talk a little about dispensationalism, uh, which is the, the theological tradition that really popularized this among Americans and British in the 19th century, um, when they talk about Israel, they're really talking about, they're assuming a, cont- a continuity between ancient Israel, the, the Israel of the Bible, the Israel of King David and Solomon, and the modern state of Israel. And they, so when they, when they see you know, the word nation in the Bible, um, they're just sort of uh, implanting that name also to, to include the nation of the modern state of Israel. And you can really right. quibble with that and say, you know, we need to be a little more nuanced in how we're, we're sort of linking these things uh, together. But uh, regardless, the way that, that um, many of these proto-Christian Zionists thought about Israel was that Israel retained a very, um, a very strong destiny in God's plans for the world redemption, and that this was largely told to us through prophecy. And that prophecy in the Old Testament, prophecy in books like Jeremiah or Isaiah that speak of some future where Israel will be this center of the world where all peoples will come and, and sort of pay tribute to Israel. Um, and then, and then um, in books like Daniel and then Revelation in the New Testament that seem to have the Jewish people playing a very central role in all the things happening at the end of time. If you're reading these books in a sort of literalistic way, in a way that whatever's being uh, portrayed by the prophets is going to happen in history, uh, like that you could observe it like a journalist or something like that. If you take that as your interpretive lens, then it hmm. seemed like uh, there was a lot for Israel to do in the future. And so many 19th century Christians are looking around, seeing that Jews at that time are very dispossessed. They're in a diaspora. They're all over the globe. They don't have a nation. These prophecies seem to have not been fulfilled. And so they must be awaiting fulfillment in the future. And so some Christians connected the dots and said, well, we can help sort of move that process along. We can um, advocate for um, Jewish protection in places where they're being persecuted and then advocate for Jewish migration to what was then called Palestine, this area of the Ottoman Empire and then the British Empire after World War One. And so the, the, the prophetic or the prophecy motivation was very strong. Um, now, it was combined with other, I, I mentioned philo-Semitism, this sort of fascination with the Jews that many Christians have just because of the shared uh, religious history of the two peoples. That's in the mix as well. And then there's also a lot of uh, arguments about why Jews should move to Palestine that had very little to do with uh, religion as well. And Christian Zionists would invoke these just as much as any other arguments. Arguments about humanitarianism, about fighting anti-Semitism, about Western values being spread uh, through Jews migrating to these areas. Um, those are all invoked as well. And so there's this this bigger stew in which uh, religious theological claims and humanitarian claims and uh, Western cultural claims are, are mixing together. And, uh, and believe it or not, um, in the 19th century, this was not a very radical view. This was actually quite a mainstream view. So in, 19, in 1891, there's something called the Blackstone Memorial. You can look it up on, on Wikipedia. And it's, it's written by this guy named William Blackstone. He was a dispensationalist. He was someone who believed that there was a prophetic future for the Jewish people. And he created a basically a petition, and he sent it to the president of the time, President Harrison. And it was signed by hundreds of uh, elites in American culture. There were Supreme Court justices who signed it. There were senators and congressmen who signed it. There were leaders of businesses who signed it. And they all signed on to this document that basically made a quasi-prophetic humanitarian argument for why um, why, why the U.S. should make sure that Jews settle in Palestine. Now, mm-hmm. Palestine at this time is controlled by the Ottoman Empire. There's very little the U.S. is going to do at, at, at all in this issue. So it's much more of a performative memorial. But it just goes to show you that at the time, this wasn't some fringe view that only some you know sort of quack pastors um, believed in. This was a mainstream view of, of uh, both a religious and a humanitarian argument um, by people like Blackstone. Let's go ahead and take a short break and we'll come back. And I have a lot of questions about that. All right. So, yeah. Okay. That I, I'm tracking with you. You know, Dan, one thing I like about you is that you at least present in a very like consistent cadence, very like informative. And I appreciate that because I think that your job as a scholar is to be that person. My job is to add some color commentary <laughs> and not shy away from my opinion on some of this stuff. Yes. And then your job is to tell me where I'm wrong in your nice Dan scholarly way. 
one of my questions I have about this is how does this Christian movement that's picking up steam convince Jewish people to go along with it? Because, you know, my, again, my understanding is that like, there was a lot of, we have to save the Jews. Are Jews even saved? Uh, it's for God to sort out. This is about proselytization, trying to convert them long, long term. How, do, how does this movement eventually get Jewish people on board where they go, Hey, uh, you know what? Cool, Christian. Thanks for thinking that you know I might be outside of God's plan, but maybe He'll use me in a different way. I'm on board. Let's let, let's create the nation state of Israel. How does that happen? Yeah, well, it never completely happened. So th- those tensions are still. <laughs> okay. I mean, that, that's still a tension within the Christian Zionist Israel relationship. Is who's exactly using whom here, and for what purposes um, are we coming together? Um, uh, yeah, and to go back to that to Blackstone, the person who wrote the memorial in 1891. The other thing he was really involved in was Jewish missions work. So he he believed all this prophetic stuff about the Jewish people. He just thought Jews could also believe in Jesus and still be Jews. And of course, Jews dissent from that view pretty strongly. Um, yeah. So the, the, the history of Jewish missions is really involved in this all the way up really until much more recently when some of the more Christian Zionist organizations today have actually denounced uh, missions work. Um, and, and that's a pretty radical change. Uh, that That's a change that was, is actually really surprising in the, in the longer history. But um, I mean, to put it succinctly, um, a lot of Jews never got on board with this and, and Christians did a lot of stuff on their own and didn't really consult the Jews. So they, they might be lobbying their own government for what they consider pro-Jewish policies um, without consulting any Jews. It might just be a totally Christian movement. There were people at the top like Herzl who were pragmatic and understood that to get any of what he wanted to get off the ground off the ground, he w- he took allies wherever he could. And so there's a long tradition of, um, you know, uh, jokes and just observations from the Jewish side about taking all this Christian interest and support. And, and, uh, you know, one joke is, um, and this would often be said when Jews and Christians get together is, you know, we both believe in the Messiah and, and when he comes, we'll just ask if he's been here before or not. Like if this is the second time he's been here or the first, and that sort of, you know, papers yeah, over some of yeah. the differences. Um, Menachem Begin, sure. the, the later prime minister would say that joke almost every time he talked to Christians. So, but, but the, the, what's under that joke is a pragmatism that um, Christians are very significant and influential in American and and Western countries. And if there are a segment of Christians who are very interested in supporting the same aims as Zionists, um, they're going to take that interest and they're going to sort of ask questions or ask for forgiveness later from their fellow Jews. Um, And that's been been the case um, for over a century now. So is it fair to say, broadly speaking, there's always nuance that really the 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 Zion the Christian Zionists were like, hey, uh, as as it sounds like from what you said, as, as people are reinterpreting the Bible in their own language, maybe for the first time, right, and starting to read their own cultural moment into the scripture and thinking about the Bible differently, uh, these Christian Zionists are like, oh, Israel might have a really large role to play. We should get them their own nation state because of you know our interpretation and maybe because of prophecy and maybe so we can get them saved. And Jewish people are like, hey, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Um, we're being, uh, we're really a persecuted minority wherever we go. And we really need a place of safety that we can protect ourselves in. And those two um, maybe competing, but also similar ideas were like, okay, pragmatically, if we work together, we can get this done. Is that kind of like what's going on here? Or is there more to that, that kind of oversimplification? No, I, th- I think that's um, th- that's a good way of saying it. And you really see this in the 1920s and 1930s when anti-Semitism is becoming the existential issue for Jews in Europe. And there are uh, Christians, and not just evangelical Christians at that point, there are also what we call mainline Christian or liberal Protestants who are also quite interested because of humanitarian reasons in mm-hmm. finding a solution to anti-Semitism in Europe and saying Zionism is an answer to that. And they come together in the 1930s there's, and, and they create statements that are denouncing what's happening in Germany with with the Nazis and 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 their anti-Semitism, and they do what they can as a as a Jewish Christian collaborative uh, group um, to to try to to, to make a difference. Um, it, it's ultimately you know th- these are these are small voluntary groups compared to nation states and 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 militaries, um, but but you do see that coming together for a shared purpose and sort of back uh, bracketing some of the differences theologically and, and otherwise um, because the moment is so uh, dire and because the 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 uh, 
the need is so great. And and mm-hmm. since Israel uh, has been founded as a state in 1948, there's been a sense of crisis ever since that moment for certainly for Israelis and for 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 the broader Jewish diaspora, and then and then particularly among evangelical Christians that 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 grew over time. But there's a sense that um, uh, there, there needs to be action before there's a coming there's a total meeting of the minds on the theology mm-hmm. or or on the beliefs undergirding the support. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of this so far makes sense. Um, I, I think the audience is tracking with what you're saying. So, you know, we get to World War II, the Holocaust happens. One of the the, the worst um, atrocities in human history ever, uh, right? I mean, j- there's been loads of documentary, uh, documentaries and, and, and data uh, that have covered just the atrocities that happened to Jewish people specifically. And that's so important to call out from from the the slow scale, just anti-Semitism in verbs and in, in language, then, you know, just to making them an outcast and eventually, um, you know, leading to their mass extermination, right? Just horrible. So now this is deeply in this, this is in the psyche of, of the world at this point. Um, it's understandable why people are probably thinking, oh my God, what just happened? We have to make this right. Okay. How do we kind of get from that motivation to what a lot of us understand now when we think about, you know, Christian Zionists, I think about someone like John Hagee or something mm-hmm. who's like, and if we don't protect Israel, the nation state of Israel at all costs, you know, like judgment or like something terrible is going to happen. Like it's so linked for so many of us to this end time prediction, but it seems like the early start of what you're talking about, maybe there was some roots of that and maybe even it was theological in nature, but it also was birthed out of a pragmatism of, hey, these people are really facing a lot of persecution across the globe. We have to help them. How does that really shift later on? Yeah, and if you um, if you actually you know read someone like John Hagee, who's this pastor in San Antonio, Texas, who founded a group called Christians United for Israel, which now has 10 million members. It's one of the largest lobby groups wow. in the country. Um, so Hagee and and you. Your audience does not need to read his stuff. It's it's a lot of it's really rough uh, to read, to be honest. He has books about the four blood moon prophecies and, and other things that um, are, are are pretty difficult. But um, but he he's someone who, if you read more about why he supports Israel so vigorously, the the prophecy stuff is in there. He's got prophecy charts. He's got books about countdown to Jeru- or countdown for Jerusalem was a book from the '90s of his, all about this type of stuff. But the interesting thing to me when I first read um, his books, he has his book called the case for his uh, the case for Zionism, and so they're you know they're it's purporting to tell you why he wants to, why he's a Zionist. He starts with actually anti-Semitism and combating anti-Semitism as his biggest goal. And I think it's it's hard to separate the modern Christian Zionist movement from its interpretation of anti-Semitism. And the interpretation goes something like this. The Holocaust wasn't just perpetrated by Nazis. It was perpetrated by Christians. So almost every every Nazi soldier was also a confessing Lutheran or a confessing Catholic who on Sunday went to church and, you know, prayed to Jesus and then also was able to gas uh, Jews during the week or, or whatever. And so there was something deeply, deeply problematic with Christianity in Europe uh, mm. during at the time of World War II. And the problem for someone like Hagee is that Christians did not have the proper understanding of Israel and of the Jewish people in God's plans for the world. And so Hagee hits this point over and over again that he's not just interested in the prophecy part, he's interested in rooting out what he considers to be any vestige of anti-Semitism and sort of swinging in the entire opposite direction, which is to say that um, really, in some ways, the whole story of, of the Bible is about Israel. It's not even about the church or, or what m- mm-hmm. many Christians would assume is this sort of broadening universalistic uh, message that that transcends um, ancient Israel and, and sort of the, the, the ethnic uh, boundaries of ancient Israel into something that's for the whole people. Now, of course, Hagee's not a Jew, so he sees himself as part of that story, but he really wants to make the argument that um, we've most Christians have misread the Bible and have, have, have read it in a sort of anti-Semitic way. And he's gotten in trouble over and over again for overstating this in ways that have been termed anti-Catholic and, um, and and many other antis as well. So he's not someone who I would definitely go to as a careful thinker, but just to understand what type of discourse is he invoking. One of them is this post-Holocaust interpretation of Christian history that sees basically everything up to 1945 uh, as um, anti-Semitic in, in church history, uh, I guess, since the New Testament. And that is now uh, on 
sort of on Christians to correct that as quickly as possible. And the way they do that is to give basically a blank check to the state of Israel to outsource any type of critique of Israel and and, and endorse whatever Israel uh, is doing. And so that's one of the main ways um, Hagee makes this argument. Um, that's very interesting because in a lot of ways, I'm like, hey, I, I see exactly what John is saying. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. David Gushy, a friend of the show as mm-hmm. well, has written on the Holocaust. And and he, part of his talks I've heard him give is is the is the sad and, and dangerous history of Christian anti-Semitism. You know how Martin Luther wrote some of the, the worst lines about Jewish people, right? So on that level, me and John will probably high five and say, absolutely, we have to own this as a church culture, our, our role in, in, in pushing anti anti-Semitism and pushing conspiracy theories. What's interesting to me about this in John's case is, A, uh, the approach to him seems to be, okay, blank check for the state of Israel to do whatever they want, uh, no matter matter what it is that they're doing, no matter who it is that they're bombing or whatever it is. And also the Christian nationalist piece Mm -hmm. is very interesting because John, as far as I know, is very much involved in like that pro-Trump kind of ideology, which has some anti-Semitic actors inside of it, like Nick Fuentes and Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about Jewish space lasers. So that's a weird contradiction for me to to hear you tell me that about John, but then John's also involved in this space. I mean, even Trump has made some comments that are at a minimum on the verge of anti-Semitism, if not just outright anti-Semitic. I don't know how you square that, you know, that circle. Right. Well, well, we're building the uh, we're building the picture here. So, on a, in addition to the um, what we just talked about, sort of the 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 opposition to anti-Semitism. Um, you're right. John Hagee is someone who's a Christian nationalist. He sees sort of this distinct future for Christian for for Christians in the U.S. to sort of be the leaders to dictate culture. He ties this pretty closely into his Christian Zionism as well. So, uh, another thing to know about John Hagee is he's a Pentecostal Christian and. And there, there are very, very lovely Pentecostals all over the place. So I'm not trying to tar the entire <laughs> right, tradition right. here, but there is a <laughs> right. there is a sort of a prosperity theology that's very uh, popular in Pentecostal Christianity. And Hagee has been one of the most um, sort of open champions of a type of prosperity theology. The idea that God really the point God really wants to bless you, and he wants he wants you to have the best life um, that 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 you can have. And really, God's in the business of making your dreams come true. Um, maybe that's a really mm. crude way of saying it. Sure. Hagee um, has this on a nation-based level. So the, the key verse for him is Genesis 12, 3. And this is at the beginning of the Bible. This is when God gives a covenant to Abraham. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And this is, this is one of many covenants in the book of Genesis that's sort of setting up the story of the nation of Israel. Well, Hagee will take that verse and he sees that as basically a, an absolute Absolutely clear-cut deal that God is making with humanity, that if you bless Israel, God will bless you. And then mm-hmm. on the flip side, if you curse Israel, God will curse you. And so mm-hmm. Hagee will sort of rail against the, um, the the sad state of the United States. It's bad morality. It's weak on foreign policy, all that kind of stuff. And the solution yeah. is support Israel. And he, huh. he, he, the way he reasons toward that is he says, God has been very clear about what a great nation does to become great, and it's to bless Israel. And and it's not it's not more complicated than that. And and hmm. um, and so every time that the U.S. doesn't sort of fully endorse it, uh, something Israel does or doesn't give as much economic aid as it could have, then that that is an opening for God to curse the United States, because God's been very clear. If you don't if you curse Israel, if you don't um, protect Israel, if you don't protect God's chosen people, um, c- curses will come down on you. And Hague will make a historical argument that, you know, the Nazis cursed the Jewish people and look where they are. They're in the ashbin of history. The British empire didn't do a great job. They're in the ashbin of history. The Roman empire back in the first century crushed the Jewish people. Well, where are the Romans now? I mean, he'll make these arguments that are as a historian, uh, a bit frustrating to, uh, to listen to. Cause I think it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting way to, to sort of construct a history, but it's quite compelling as you listen to it because you go, yeah, you know what? Sure. Every, every major people that has tried to stop the Jewish people from fulfilling God's plans is now sort of lying in ruins. And, and on the flip side, America's pretty great and we've been pretty nice to Israel so far. And so, yeah, we must, uh, you know, to solve sort of all the culture war issues, to solve all the problems in American society, blessing Israel must be a big part of the uh, solution there. And so that's the key. He's ma- that's the argument he's making alongside the opposing anti-Semitism argument. Can you give us kind of a, a broad overview of, of how 
um, this mentality that, that you just just described kind of infiltrated even beyond the charismatic circles. I mean, yeah. in the evangelical spaces I know and track, it is since I was a kid, the, 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 the rhetoric, well, the conversation was this. We always support Israel. Israel is God's chosen country. It's a special nation set apart. It's, it plays a role in God's divine plan. Anyone or anything else that stands against it is automatically the enemy, and it's a very clear-cut line. And I've heard that in reform spaces. I've heard that in charismatic spaces. How does this mentality of Christian Zionism, as it's starting to morph now into what we more as, as more into what we recognize it to be, how does that kind of get embedded into the evangelical psyche? Yeah, so Hege's um, blessing, I, I call it a, a nation-based blessing theology, um, uh, mm-hmm. a, a prosperity gospel version. I mean, this is a particularly uh, precise, maybe you could say, theology of, of God blessing you because you bless Israel. That, that, that yeah. base belief that you've just described hearing in reform circles and other circles, that caught on in part because of the popularity of dispensational theology in a much broader part of, of the evangelical world, um, and because there's just a deeper tradition of um, American uh, philo-Semitism that goes back, that, that doesn't even have to do anything with uh, um, a theology necessarily, but has mm. to do with um, uh, cultural affinities between uh, Jewish, uh, sort of um, uh, uh, Jew, American Jews and Israeli Jews um, that has to do with uh, Israel being a, a, a country full of Western migrants in a, in a region that doesn't have uh, many other Western nations. So there's all types of reasons why evangelicals today will um, see Israel as as the default good good guy or, or the good person, often in, in they'll say like in a tough neighborhood, right? They're, they're the good guy in a tough neighborhood. And that, that's pretty, um, that's pretty dismissive of the rest of, of the, of the, of the region. Um, but, sure. but that, that type of theology um, is, is very popular, a sort of reduced precision of what Hagee said, this idea that God is on the side of Israel is something that, um, you know, evangelists going back to Billy Sunday would say back even before there was a nation of Israel to Billy Graham, to Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, any of the big sort of figures you can name. And many of them were interested in Israel um, disproportionately to other countries in the world. And they, this was the justification they would make. Some of them w- did not come out of these prosperity theology traditions. And someone like Jerry Falwell, he's, a, he's an independent Baptist. That's not part of his tradition. He would often right. emphasize the curse part more than the blessing part. So he would <laughs> yeah. say, I, you know, he, he wouldn't commit anything on on sort of what your blessings might be, but he would say, you know, America's in decline and America hasn't been supporting Israel enough. This is a way to correct that is to be more supportive of Israel um, and particularly for Falwell in a Cold War context where Israel played also this role of being a beacon of democracy in a part of the world that seemed to be you know, more threatened by communism. Uh, it had that sort of uh, sheen of also being uh, a, a, a sort of Christian position, but but people like Falwell would still sort of make those connections between um, curses and and sort of U.S., the destiny of the U.S. in relation to the nation of Israel. This is very interesting because it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that, hey, there are actually a lot of ingredients, including a religious one, that go into the how in the American psyche, the unwavering support of Israel has become so firm. And, it, and I think I was under the impression that it was mainly theological, uh, at least in the evangelical sense, but and maybe, maybe it even presents that way. But underneath of that are these ingredients of Western culture, of American values, of, of certain political ideology, right, of just being um, – a, someone who has a particular worldview about what a nation is or isn't. So it sounds like what you're saying is there are actually several ingredients that go into this that come out, you know, the, uh, the, the product of we always support the nation state of Israel no matter what. It's a black and white issue. They're in a tough neighborhood, so to speak. The end. Is that the case? That's right. And, and that's one reason why, because there are so many reasons, is why support for Israel is not a, a partisan issue. I mean, it's a, hmm. the, the vast majority of Americans, when polled, side with Israel over Palestine uh, or Palestinians right. in, in these polls that are just sort of asking, who do you support? And you can chalk a good chunk, particularly within a, a religious context, a good chunk of that up to evangelical theology and other things. But of course, there's a lot more going on to get 60, 70, 80 percent of all Americans to side with one side over the other. And just to you know, add more onto it, it's the way that the media covers the Middle East that tends to um, uh, favor Western perspectives. Um, it's, it's, um, uh, it's the way uh, the U.S., uh, basically American culture has portrayed Israeli culture as, um, as, as Western in the sense that um, 
Israel is a pioneer culture, just like the U.S. is a pioneer culture. I mean, that's a very strong trope in the 1950s and 1960s. There's there's just dozens and dozens of ways where there are these these affinities between the U.S. and Israel. Not to mention that the U.S. and Israel combined um, are are by far most Jews in on the globe live in either the U.S. or Israel, and so there's a lot mm-hmm. of just relational connections um, between. Um, the U.S. and Israel as well. That makes uh, religion a key part. I mean, I, I wrote a book on it. I, I, I think it's a it's an important part, but it doesn't explain everything, and it doesn't even explain um, the scope of the support for Israel. To where even now, even in 2023, as we're you know less than a week from the beginning of this new conflict between Hamas and Israel, there is just almost univocal support in our um, by our Congress people, by our senators, yep. by our uh, White House. Um, um, for Israel um, in, yeah. in this in this um, in this conflict, and and that you know evangelicals don't get all the blame for that. <laughs> that, that that's something that's right. that's much bigger. Yeah. Well, I mean, e- even Joe Biden, right? I mean, a Democrat who for the past two years has been under the re- relentless attacks of Christian nationalism for being un-American, unpatriotic, and you know all, all, all these things. And here he is. I mean, him and Ben Shapiro are kind of singing the same tune, right? right. Of like we unequivocally stand with the nation state of Israel. And friends, just so you know, I'm not saying it in a way. Uh, to make a moral judgment. We're just trying to paint a picture of just what it looks like in America when it comes to this particular issue and and the conflict between, uh, like you said, Hamas and Israel or you know Palestinians and, and Israelis. And I think that we, we just have to recognize that and understand where does it come from. One of my other questions for you, Dan, is how much of the religious evangelical part plays into the government's unwavering historical support for you know the nation state of Israel versus maybe just its own self-interest, right? Like, oh, we, we want to protect the region. Maybe there's an oil. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure what, what it might be, but some other kind of incentive to actually support the nation state of Israel. Yeah, and I mentioned uh, before, what, one key issue was uh, anti-communism and the whole Cold War framework and that Israel was seen mm-hmm. as sort of a Western democratic country um, and, and so a key ally in, in the Cold War. Um, yes, this is a debate that diplomatic historians have all the time. What role do domestic politics or domestic interest groups play in shaping U.S. foreign policy. And I think um, I tend to side, I mean, I study it, so I I sort of see it this way. I tend to side with thinking that they do play a significant role in actually Mm -hmm. shaping what the U.S. government does. But I also want to acknowledge that this is a a debated topic that you have to get into the sources in a nitty gritty way and sort of interpret, well, did that Secretary of State make that decision because they were feeling pressured or because of this? Uh, and, And almost no politician will say, I did this because a domestic political interest group told me to. They'll say it right. in other terms, except for Trump, which was very interesting. So in when he moved the embassy um, from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was this longstanding goal of, of Christian Zionists and others, he actually did say afterward, I did it for the evangelicals. So that was really helpful as a historian to say, oh, okay, you 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 uh, you added <laughs> yourself. You did it for this domestic political reason. Uh, listen, let's do this. Let's take a short break. I want to ask you about that. I have a question about that whole situation. So hang sure. tight for a second. All right, so here's my question for you. Can you help me understand the significance of of of, of what it meant for for Trump to move the was it the embassy you said yeah. from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Because I know when it happened, I was like, okay, this seems like it's breaking news. I see a lot of people going crazy about it for a lot of different reasons. What what what's the context? Give us the history and why it was such a big deal. Yeah, so it, it was largely a symbolic victory. It, it's the, the, not a lot changed on the ground, and not a lot changed in the way U.S. conducted diplomacy. But going back all the way to 1948, the U.S. had decided not to place its its embassy, its official sort of entryway with dealing with the state of Israel in Jerusalem, which Israel claimed was its capital, declared it its capital early on. Uh, But because Jerusalem was contested territory, because Palestinians um, and uh, and Israelis and early on and Jordan uh, controlled part of Jerusalem, uh, the U.S. did not want to sort of predetermine the diplomatic status of Jerusalem by placing its official embassy there. So that was the policy uh, decade after decade, even including when uh, Israel uh, in 1967 took over the rest of Jerusalem and started administering it as occupied territory and actually annexed the rest of Jerusalem. The U.S. still refused to move their embassy because they didn't want to. This was, you know, presidents like Richard Nixon and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan did not want to predetermine the the 
the diplomatic situation. Um, and, and that was the, that was the policy up until uh, Trump moved it. And Trump basically um, argued that he was uh, recognizing the truth of the, of the matter or the reality on the ground, which is that Jerusalem is the capital of the nation of Israel. And so it was sort of insulting. This was his argument. It was insulting not to put it there. It was like we were uh, not truly believing Israel or something about its capital. And this had been an argument that many supporters of Israel were making for decades but before that, that this would be a symbolic way to show that the U.S. is on uh, is on Israel's side. And to be fair to uh, Trump, I guess, almost every single politician uh, who ran for president, Democrat or Republican, promised to do this going back to the 80s. And this was mm-hmm. a this was sort of a cheap campaign trail promise that would get some supporters, you know, uh, on your side. But then they would whoever won would not actually do it when they were in office. So in this sense, Trump said, "I'm going to actually do what I said on the campaign trail." And and then that's where that line where he said, "I did it for the evangelicals." Um, he 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 was basically saying like, "I did this because I promised to do it to get elected, and now I'm actually paying off um, that group." Um, okay. Uh, so so that's nothing changed in in terms of how U.S. conducts diplomacy. Um, the, the little thing that changes if you if you're an American citizen and you need to renew your passport or something like that, you would now go to Jerusalem instead of uh, Tel Aviv. I mean, th- there's things like that that would change. Um, and and even with the move, there was a caveat that it, uh, the 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 embassy is located in part of Jerusalem that is West Jerusalem. And so it's, it's the part of Jerusalem that there's almost no conceivable way that that would be anything but part of the Israeli state in any future two-state solution agreement. So they did not do what would be much more provocative, which would be to place it in some part of Jerusalem that is is contested um, by international law. So mm. they sort of moved it, but didn't do the most provocative thing uh, they could do. And that's because you know diplomats, even in the Trump administration, understood that that, that this needed to be a bargaining chip in a future two-state solution deal, if at all possible. That makes sense. So, it, so yeah, I mean, so far, this is very interesting. It, it's kind of blown away some of my preconceived notions, um, but also reiterated how complicated all this is. It seems like for a lot of um, Christian Zionists today, mainly the evangelical ones in America, there seems to be a connection between if we don't stand with Israel, despite my own personal reservations on their on certain actions that certain actions that they do, God might remove his blessing from our country because we're not standing with Israel. Is there a strong connection there? There is. And and you'll if you know how to read uh, everything from Facebook posts to op-eds to statements <laughs> by organizations, you'll see that type of logic working in the background. I don't want to minimize maybe the more uh, sensationalistic part of this relationship as well, which is that there are tons of, of Christians, of evangelicals, who really see what's happening in the Middle East now as part of the end times, or as, or as, as the, pre, yeah. the prologue to the end times. And so they're reading everything that's happening, almost symbolically, almost like they're trying to, I, I was just reading something uh, yesterday where um, Greg Laurie, the, the big pastor out in, oh, yeah. in California. Out of Harvest. Yeah, out of Harvest. harvest. Um, he, you know, he's already weighed in on this and 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 said that, and, and he, he frames it as sort of speculative, but there's no other opposing side. So you're just going to take what Greg Laurie says that, um, um, you know, Gog and Magog, these sort of prophetic figures that are going to attack Israel in the end times. He wondered if those could be Russia and Iran. And he's wondering if if those are who are behind Hamas in this in in the uh, the surprise terrorist attacks. And so you get right there, like that's Greg Laurie's interest in this. This at least that's his primary interest is seeing like, can he assemble the prophetic pieces on the board in a way that'll make sense for him and his community of what's coming next. And that is a big part of of this conversation as well. Well, and to be clear, Greg Laurie is not Greg Locke. Okay, yeah. don't he? He's not nearly as fringe as someone yeah. like a Greg Locke figure. He's a pretty well known. What what some might even say is a mainstream evangelical. You know, he's a gifted communicator. He's part of that evangelical culture. And if he's saying things like this, you can only imagine how some of the more uh, you know, radical thinkers like the Greg, Greg Locks of the world are seeing this. And maybe this is a good time to point out. Um, how this is not new, right, for evangelicalism. I mean, when I had you on the podcast last time to talk, to talk about dispensationalism, we talked a lot about the rapture and how this is kind of a newer idea in Christianity. But for us, it feels like it's always been there because of how, of how we're taught about it. But this idea of like predicting something, right, mm-hmm. this is not a new phenomenon. This is nothing new. Evangelicals have, have thought that, we, that we, we've been in the, in the last days for a long time. Is that the case? Oh, of course. And and it's not, I mean, it's not even, we feel the evangelical version of this. Historically, 
historically speaking, Christians have been doing this for 2000 years. Like there's a, <laughs> there's an apocalyptic streak in, in yeah. Christianity. We sometimes we call it Kiliism. That's another sort of academic term for this same idea that the end is near. Um, God's revealing his plans. Um, you know, the, 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 ter the term apocalypse means, you know, a revealing of something so that right. there's something, right. ha something behind what we see with our eyes is the reality. Um, so yes, I mean, we're Americans, at least you and I are. And so we, we sort of are bathed in a culture that's dominated by evangelical expressions of this, but you go back in almost every century, there's these versions of apocalypticism. Uh, I think what's unique about the more recent ones is, is this, um, the, the role that the Jews play and particularly a state of Israel plays in these end time scenarios. And so really the key theater for not just Greg Laurie, but, um, uh, uh, you know, believe it or not, Hal Lindsey is still um, with us. So he's in his nineties. Um, the guy oh, who really? he is, yeah. <laughs> wow. um, I know that. he wrote late great planet earth, really uh, best selling book that was on all this stuff as well. Um, uh, they, they really think the center of the universe or particularly the center of, of human history is happening in the Middle East, not in the US. And that you get some of that with the blessings theology as well, that like whatever we're doing, it has to be in relation to God's, you know, real chosen people, which are uh, the people of Israel. So that's the version we experience. But of course, it's a much longer history and evangelicals are just the most recent participants in this type of um, apocalyptic uh, way of thinking. Yeah. And right now, I mean, evangelicals hold a lot of power politically and culturally in the American psyche, right? So I think a lot of people, whether they are a part of Greg Laurie's church or not, kind of get this vibe of like, yeah, I can't tell you exactly why, but if we don't always stand with the nation state of Israel, no matter what, something bad is probably going to happen. Is that, I mean, that, that's just yeah. kind of how it feels to me just in general growing up, whether it was whether I was part of an evangelical church or not, just kind of in the air. And I think the data you mentioned, like 80% or something of Americans, you know, stand with Israel, so to speak, kind of demonstrates how effective some of that stuff can be. Yeah. And, and you know, one interesting thing, if we think of just apocalypticism throughout the last 2000 years, is that most commonly apocalypticism has been a, a bottom up, a class based, a, a disenfranchised mm -hmm. um, uh, movement. It, it's people railing against the state of affairs and saying there has to be a better world out there. And it, it must be breaking in. And so if you think of the Middle Ages, the, the apocalyptic movements tended to be by peasants and by um, the uneducated. And mm -hmm. and they're using the, the what they know about um, biblical prophecy and other things to sort of call for justice or, or call for an, up, an overturning of, of the system of affairs. What's interesting about modern evangelicalism is one, it's, in, it's within a democratic society. And so um, there's a lot more ability to shape the political conversation than to shape power. Um, and then also most evangelicals are middle class. And and so there's not an obvious sort of immediate economic uh, justification or, or not justification, but but explanation for apocalypticism. Um, I actually think there's a book from a few years ago called American Apocalypse by a historian named Matt Sutton, who's really good at mm -hmm. this, of showing the, the importance of the middle class nature of modern evangelicalism and the way then that uh, something like a blessing theology makes a lot of sense to middle class Americans. And also that there's a sense that um, evangelicals not only should believe these things, but are encouraged to act upon them, to organize, to create um, organizations, to tour Israel. That's another really popular thing that Huge. shapes these ideas. Of course, you have to be of some means to spend thousands of dollars in 10 days or 20 days in Israel. Most people, I would guess, you know, most Americans can't afford that in any given uh, year, but there are tens of thousands of evangelicals that go every year uh, that help shape their views on the region. And then they have these firsthand accounts that may or may not represent uh, reality on the ground, but are really powerful um, to, the own, to their own ways of thinking about these things. So I think it's yeah, really I, important to, yeah. to, to recognize the middle-class nature of, of this. I think that's a really important point because, um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff because I was born into a middle-class family, a middle-class evangelical family, right? So you don't really, for me, the apocalyptic nature of things was always used as a way to maintain the status quo, right? It was always like, oh, vote for this person so things stay the same or so we reclaim some kind of greatness from back in the day that we've apparently lost because a democratic president is currently in office as opposed to who we liked before, right? So it is kind of a uh, maybe a, a historical inversion of how apocalyptic apocalyptic literature tended to come from the bottom up. And in this case, in our cultural moment, it's kind of coming more from the middle or even top down to keep, you know, certain people in positions of power and certain nations in certain places 
at the top at the expense of, of who usually is the one speaking that truth to power. Is that a fair assessment? That's right. And just one other example is uh, I mentioned Hal Lindsey. So really popular evangelical dispensationalist type figure in the 1970s and 80s. He was one of the most loudest voices from the evangelical community arguing for the arms buildup in the 1980s during the mm-hmm. Reagan administration to sort of prosecute the Cold War, the new Cold War it was called. So sort of fighting the same Soviet enemy in a new way. And so he used apocalyptic uh, analysis, rhetoric to encourage, you know, expanding the military budget. I mean, that, that was the thing that really was his passion mm, area. Wow. And so you can imagine just uh, the, the different ways apocalyptic, apocalypticism has been used over the centuries. And that was sort of a novel one, which was to argue for, you know, actually building more nukes, actually, um, you know, building more aircraft carriers because of this ideological situation where, as you mentioned, how Lindsay really wanted the status quo to continue or at least, or, or at least the American dominance of global uh, geopolitics to continue. And and so that that's one way that um, this type of evangelical apocalypticism has been used in, in recent decades that is just very different than other examples throughout history. Yeah, that makes that, – that is – you know, I, I never thought about it that way before until we had this conversation, but it makes complete sense. I mean, I remember faint, you know, um, whispers when I was younger of how Russia is one of the seven dragons or, you know, or it was the beast in the sea. And I, a lot of it stemmed from a particular way of reading Revelation into our cultural moment, which, listen, I mean, to be frank and to be fair – I don't think interpreting the Bible for our current moment is a bad thing. It it can be very helpful, but I think it just goes to show how we have to be so careful uh, because anyone can interpret the text and make it say whatever they want to make a point that God is suddenly automatically on their side and, and automatically therefore against the other side, right? But as we're discovering in this conversation and in my conversation with Kevin, it's a little more complicated than that. And the air that we're breathing as modern American, either ex-evangelicals or current evangelicals is is new given the history of the Christian faith. I mean, we covered how even the idea of nations are new, how a lot of what we're seeing with the early Christian Zionist movement was birthed out of reading the Bible in a new way, in your own language, and just kind of interpreting it at face value. And so I think I think one of the big takeaways for me is just a reminder that so much of the air that we're breathing, even though I was taught this is just historic biblical Christianity, in so many ways, maybe some of the foundational tenets like the death and resurrection of Jesus are historic, but regarding all the other stuff that gets slapped onto it, um, that's actually kind of new and and pretty recent in terms of how Christians have seen you know, the end times or this rapture idea or the, the, the concept of, of, of Jewish people needing their own nation state. And that's a really important reminder, I think, for the audience. Yeah, I think even um, I mentioned I'm, I would call myself an evangelical Christian. Even those things I think are very historic and, and maybe even timeless, they still have to be interpreted through culture. And so it, yeah. no matter what, you know, no matter where you are in, in history, no matter what culture you come from, there's no unmediated access to uh, to the truth on this front. Um, and, and then one, one more thing I just want to mention, because um, I, I don't want to go yes. without mentioning it, is uh, talking about, just going back even to Hal Lindsey and talking about how we need to support Israel and build up the U.S. military because of the Cold War. The other effect of this type of um, reading of the current situation within this apocalyptic mindset is it also dehumanizes the enemies in that, or, or, or sort of really casts very clear senses of who the enemies are. So in in Hal Lindsey's world, the enemies were the Soviet Union and then the vassals of the Soviet Union, which he would include the entire Arab world. I mean, he would talk about this, um, the, uh, the entire Muslim world, to, uh, to be more precise. And so you would get these very uh, crude and generalistic understandings of what do Muslims believe? How is that inherently opposed to what Christians believe? This type of analysis that is ultimately rooted in this symbolic pro- pro- prophecy type way of reading what's happening in the world today. And, uh, you know, I'm just constitutionally built differently than someone like Hal Lindsey. But I also think um, there's just so much more nuance to, even if you do believe that, even if you're someone who believes that um, what's happening right now in in the Middle East does have some prophetic significance, my encouragement would be don't sort of be lazy and rely on these tropes that sort of work out from this original interpretation and understand that there are humans acting on all sides of this. And for whatever reason, um, God has not made us automatons to fulfill prophecy 
policy in some precise way. And he gives yeah. a lot of agency to humans to be very complicated people. And so even with um, the, the sort of positive part, or I don't know if it's positive, but the ways that um, this type of thinking has really elevated Israel in the minds of many evangelical Christians and others, it's also diminished the views and dehumanized yes. in a lot of way, a lot of other people, including uh, Christians in the Middle East who aren't uh, uh, who are Arab or, or other ethnicities who are almost entirely ignored by this conversation. Um, yeah. th- that is, and it sounds like uh, you might be uh, filling that in, in a later episode as well as, as another part of the conversation or some of the voices from the region. But um, that, that's a really important and, and unfortunate effect of some of the ways that this type of reading uh, can lead to. Dan, I, I mean, you really set up the the next episodes better than I ever could, but you're absolutely right. Um, one example I'll be using with, with, with my next guest, uh, we, we were talking about this uh, behind the scenes and kind of prepping for our conversation because it's going to be very um, uh, sensitive with how, we're navi- with how we navigate it. Um, I said, yeah, you know what's interesting? Like, I didn't even know that that like Palestine was a thing until a few years ago. Hmm. Like I always just knew about Israel and some threat. It was Israel versus like Islam or something. You know, I I just had no context for the fact that there were Palestinian people or that or that there are two and a half million people right now in a very small plot of land completely locked in, you know, by 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 cement barriers, right? And so and also the fact that that there are Christian Palestinian people right now who are currently in bomb shelters trying to hide from rockets being launched at them, right? And like, I agree. I was just never given that other side of like, hey, like we can't forget that these are also people made in the Imago Dei, people who are made in the image of God and that as Jesus followers, we're commanded to love our enemies. So what does that look like as we navigate these things? It was very much that, what you said, that that lazy trope of we always stand here these people are always bad. These people are on God's side. If we partner with God, with God, we'll get blessed, you know, selfishly and to hell with everyone else, because that is, you know, what we need to do as Christians. So I agree with you. I think that that's a great note to end on that. We really need to recognize that whether intended or not, one of the consequences of, of such an emphasis on the nation state of Israel and the in the evangelical psyche is that the other people in this conflict get minimized and dehumanized. And that is problematic for a lot of reasons. So, um, Dan, I appreciate you making time on such short notice. I texted you, I think, 24 hours ago, and here we are. If folks want to know more about you, where can they find your work? I have a website, danielghummel.com, and that has all of my recent writings. Um, I am writing a few things right now that will be out sometime soon on um, on the current conflict. Um, and, and there's where my books are, too. Again, my... The, the book that's really on this is the academic book. So maybe just click on a few of my articles if you're interested in my perspective. Um, I, I, I'm, I couldn't even ask my family to buy that book. So I'm not going to ask uh, people <laughs> I don't know to buy that book. Fair um, enough. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, honestly, this is the second time you've been on the podcast. It, it's been great both times. You're you're uh, just uh, so much wisdom and knowledge, a complete treasure trove of information. I really appreciate making time and sharing your expertise with the audience. I know it was so helpful. We'll talk again soon for sure. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim.